like our guy here on the panel, Chris Nyland, one of only nine men in the history of the sport to record more than 3,000 minutes. He sounds pretty damn good to me. And have you know? 20 goals. And have 20 goals. <laughs> and win a Stanley Cup. And lead the league in penalty minutes in back-to-back years with 338 and 358 minutes, respectively. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down, and I never stayed down. And I was vicious, and I was malicious, and I don't care. <laughs> Welcome to the Raw Knuckles podcast, and uh, today we have my good friend, uh, Liam McGuire. Liam, uh, co-author of the book, The Real Ogie, The Life and Legend of uh, Goldie Goldthorpe. Uh, what a character he is, and Liam, um, there's no one better when it comes to knowing the history of hockey. Uh, he's a huge Montreal Canadiens fan, and uh, he just eats it up. You can ask him any question, and uh, you, you're going to have a hard time to stump him uh, when it comes to hockey trivia. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was thinking of questions earlier today that I don't, I don't even know the answers to, so hopefully he's telling the truth. He could make up any answer, and I'd be like, oh, man, you're good. But I was reading about him, and it sounds like he knows everything. Well, Everything. it's funny, funny when I invite him. He said, Knuckles, who are you doing a podcast with? I said, Tim Stapleton. He goes, oh, he scored the last goal ever for the Atlanta Thrashers. Right away. Like, like we got bang. a guest. We got a guest that actually knows me. They didn't have to, like, yeah, Google Yeah, he, he knew you right off the All hop. Right. They didn't have to Google you. It's my favorite funny episode. Stuff. This is my favorite episode. Hey, there it he is. is. Lamb. What's going on, boys? How are you, Liam? I was just saying, Liam, like we got our first guest that actually uh, like heard of me. So I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was saying to Knuckles when he called me last week that uh, I'm pretty certain, Tim, you probably, because you're from Illinois, you've been lumped in, right, with with Pat and Mike. But I I remember when you came in the NHL and they – because I follow it so closely or try to, that people were saying, no, he's – He's not related, and and then of course you ended up scoring the last goal in Thrasher history. So I mean, you're in the books, man. I still get asked if I'm related, and we can let's just. I like this. Let's just talk about me the whole time. This, this, <laughs> I don't know. It might be a five. It might be a five minute podcast, but no. I. Uh, that's funny you say that because I. That was early on uh, for a long time. There was a lot of like, are you related to Pat? You know, Whitey and 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 the other Staplettons, and it was just yeah. For a little bit, I was like, "Yeah, I, I." For a little bit, I lied, you know, just to, just to fit in. But no, why not, not man? Why not? I but mean, the, that's not the, <laughs> not a bad thing. The the tr- <laughs> the true question here is, uh, Liam, do you know where he played after he left the NHL? Oh boy, overseas, right? Yeah, somewhere to... over. Um. I think I think I thought anyway. I thought you went overseas and played in the KHL. You knew, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, go. I I I cannot. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed already. I can't remember the name of the team. 
Oh, the first right. team. The first team was. Wait, we're finishing this trivia question. We're gonna hear about your. I'm with you. We're gonna we're gonna hear about your 20 goals later. Don't worry. Uh, I played in Minsk in Belarus. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. We can we can right. carry on, Nux. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, Liam. Welcome. Uh, welcome uh, to the Raw Knuckles podcast with Tim and I. And uh, you know, we've been having all different types of guests. We're looking for some NHL players and um, coaches and media. And, you know, I was, I, we're going, we had a nice hit list going and I, I had you on my hit list because I said, God, there's no one who, who knows more about the Montreal Canadiens for one, but the NHL itself and your passion for that. Uh, I just, it, it's incredible. And I, I guess I kind of want to find out uh, did you play the game as a youngster and have that dream of playing the NHL? And how was it that you um, became so interested in the Habs? Yeah, well, uh, figured out by Pee Wee, uh, I just wasn't going to be good enough. That was quite apparent to me, but didn't stop my love of the game. I, I still you know, tried my best every time out there. I played right through um, midget into juvenile. Um, I got cut from the junior B team, just couldn't, not good enough, and uh, played two years of juvenile, which is basically equivalent to junior C. And then I went into um, college, and I, I played, um, I didn't make the school team, but I, I played the level below it, but it was, I was captain of that team, it was full contact hockey. I played there till I was 24, and uh, it was awesome. I, I loved it, because I'd kind of gotten a little bit more comfortable on the ice uh, with my just my style such as it was at a thousand leagues below pro let alone the nhl but i never stopped having a passion for uh for playing the game i went into meetings after i coached my son for 13 years i still skate today i mean it's uh it's been my life as long as i can remember just as the montreal canadians have been i mean i was born in montreal i lived the first seven years of my life in the province of quebec and when we moved to where i say i grew up which is a rural road about 30 miles south of ottawa that the closest team was still the montreal Canadiens. so it was it, it was it was absolutely indoctrinated in the every fiber of my being that i, I was going to be a hab fan but it uh i i wouldn't have known at that time maybe at six or eight or ten how passionate it was going to be a part of my life but it uh, it became that very quickly and and uh and i've loved every second of it so yeah habs fan and uh you haven't been swayed to root for those ottawa senators even though they got that uh, great american player pain in the ass kachuk but it's amazing the times i've been around you and i know you, you the hockey trivia but the facts that you come up with do you have a photographic memory and and how did that get going you collect hockey cards what because it's like you know every stat this guy where he's born when he was drafted um it's crazy i, I first of all thank you chris for saying that i i don't have a photographic memory and i i don't know it all but in respect to the trivia side of things where i've tried and i guess somewhat successfully have carved out a living for 41 years um, do, doing this professionally where I've been paid to entertain because of my regurgitation of the knowledge on the history of the NHL, <laughs> it, uh, it, 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 it really is just a love of doing what I do, blessed with a very good memory. 
collected the hockey cards as kids back in the day in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. The hockey cards not only had the requisite stats on the back, but they contained a little anecdote or two. Could be Carol Vadney with the California Golden Seals and in 1970 led the NHL in fighting majors. You know, he also later, you know, previously had won a Stanley Cup with the Montreal Canadiens. He later won one with the Boston Bruins. But on the back of that card, that particular year, it might have said that he led the NHL in fighting majors. And I just filed out away. And, and, and those little anecdotes became the basis of my trivia. And then my, I, I did collect all the cards, as, as did all my friends. You got to keep in mind where I was growing up. I, I'm growing up in rural Canada in the 1960s. Every single boy that I was a friend with played hockey. Every single one. And when we weren't on the ice, we were playing in the driveway or in the park, you know, in the field on 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 the frozen field or whatever. Like we just we played hockey. It's all we did. It's all we did is we we played hockey and and we talked hockey. And the, the, the Summit Series in 72 was, um, was a massive, massive effect on my life as a young male, 13 years old at that time. That month of hockey, because it culminated with the start of, of, of grade eight in elementary school, and everything the country went through and everything that everybody was alive that had the presence of mind to understand what was happening when that series happened, it had a profound effect on me, pushing me almost to the next level of passion toward the game albeit at that time mostly from a canadian angle but i was already a long time have been like we're, we're three days away from the anniversary of the first game i ever watched in its entirety the night that john belleville scored his only overtime goal of his career april 24th 1969 game six against the bruins semifinals scored in double overtime it ended after midnight i had to plead with my parents to let me stay up i was in grade four and, and I'll never forget after he scored, Fergie banging the puck in. Just like, yeah, man, that one went in and this one went in too. Screw you guys. And, and uh, they won the series, went on to win the Stanley Cup. And I fell asleep in class the next day. And our teacher, Mrs. McCaskill, woke me up at the back of the class. And I jumped up and yelled, he scores. And, and she said, someone stayed up late watching the game last night. And all the, all the kids laughed. But, uh, I mean, that was April 24, 69. And here we are in April 21. So, I remember things like that. That's they had a big, big, big effect on me. What was your title like when you were like in your twenties? Or you just like I'm like like when someone's like, "What are you doing with your life?" You're just like, "I'm the real stats Sundine or what, like you know what I mean? Like what was that? You know, I no, I think it. it's incredible. I think I think you like as you get older, we all know like I pre, you appreciate things more. I think it's amazing you're doing something straight from passion. Like you're living a life of passion. But, you know, I mean, I'm, it's, it's probably, I, I mean, did you ever think about, like, like how'd you, what'd you what, did, what was your title? Like, what would you say you were yeah. doing in your early 20s, I guess? I, I, I had a self-proclaimed title that I, that I still carry with me today. I, I, I call myself the NHL, uh, wor the world's number one NHL historian is what I call myself now. Back in those days, I called myself the world's NHL trivia expert. And I took a Montreal Canadian jersey the first one that i ever purchased i had to send away to get it through the hockey news and it got delivered through my house came in the mail it was probably one of the most exciting days of my life and i wore it uh out pretty much but before it absolutely disintegrated on me i went into a little store in manatic i ended up another little village that i grew up near and they had a they had a sports store. I ended up working there and sharpening skates there and selling hockey sticks and hockey equipment. They had a silk screening machine, and I had put on the back 
NHL trivia expert. So I would go to the bar. <laughs> I was 18 years old. I would take my jacket off and put my back to the biggest part of the crowd. And after never failed, after about 20 minutes, a couple of guys, obviously way older, I was 18 and usually much bigger. And they'd come over and say, what's with the shirt, kid? And I would just say, look, I'm the expert of the world. You want to try me on a question? Here's the deal. It's a buck a question or a pint a question. And I would sit there, drink for free all night, make 50 bucks and go home. It was beautiful. Uh, that's, that's I'm so... blown away. I'm blown away. I am. Well, it, 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 it's amazing, to be honest. Well, when you start firing some questions at him here at some point, some trivia questions, and he blows you away even more, you'll be... Uh, I think you'd be a bit surprised, but uh, let's Liam, say, I, I know. Told, I told Ducks, I was like, I'm going to ask him questions that I don't even know answers to. So he can probably make anything up and I'll be like, oh, that's amazing. So, so the Habs, all right. Knuckles play for the Habs. You're a huge Habs fan. Um, uh, let's go. And I, I want to ask you a couple Mount Rushmore questions. Who's your Mount Rushmore of Montreal Canadiens? And then your Mount Rushmore of... NHL. NHL? Yeah. Well, the, the Habs yeah. one, they're both, for me, very, very easy answers. I mean, it, it's Berenz, Richard, Beliveau, and Guy for the Habs. And it's uh, chronologically, it's it's um, uh, Gordy Howe, Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, and Mario Lemieux for, for the NHL. I, I think if you polled 95% of all Montreal fans, you're going to get those four guys. And if you polled 95% of all NHL fans, you're going to get those four guys plus or minus somebody maybe who has a real strong feeling for somebody else that uh, that came in. And, and you know, Chris, Chris, do you remember when Murray Wilson was running the alumni and we did those events in Mont Tremblant? The, the, yeah. the fantasy, the yep. fantasy camps. Exactly. And, and uh, I remember counting the Stanley Cup rings in the room the second time I was there. And I believe it was 132 that were in the room that particular night. Now, mind you, uh, Jean was there and Pocket Rocket and uh, and Yvonne, and there's 31 just between those three. But, I mean, this is the type of thing that the Habs had at that time. And I came into it in the 60s. They had it in the 50s. They had it in the 40s. They had it in the 30s with Morenz. They had it in the 20s with Morenz and Joliet. And then their first cup in 1916. That tradition that carried on for a long, long time, you know, sparked that. In terms of the NHL, I don't think there's any question if, if, if people don't have Gordy Howe on that list, it speaks to lack of not only historical knowledge, but respect. And the way I always answered that is I take the four guys and offer up the one key thing why I think they should be. The Montreal one's a no-brainer. There isn't anybody else. Those are the four guys. The, the NHL one, you could say maybe is some people want to debate. Gordy Howe was in the top five, not the top 10, the top five in scoring for 20 consecutive years, 1949 to 1969. Nobody has touched that. No one ever will touch that. And, and it's, it's just unbelievable what, what he did. To me, that substantiates not only that, that he was a winner, six Art Ross trophies, six Hart trophies, four Stanley Cups, did it all. Plus, you could make the case for a number of years in the 1950s, he probably was the heavyweight champion of the league. His fight with Luke Fontenato in February of 59 was 
one of the most anticipated and talked about fights in hockey history for decades. And and uh, he, he needs to be there. Wayne Gretzky played 20 years in the NHL at 15 100-point seasons, four 200-point seasons. He's the greatest statistical force in the history of sports. Bobby Orr has a defenseman changed the game. This guy had six consecutive 100-point seasons and led the league in scoring twice in 1970 and 1975 as a defenseman. He, had, he was plus 124 in 1971. His numbers, what he did offensively compared to any other defenseman in history is exactly what Wayne did a decade later in the NHL. And I include Mario Lemieux for all of the reasons that the Mario apologists want to move him and anoint him as number one. And look, I say to people, because I've done gigs, and I get asked this all the time, and I say, look, whatever order you want, you want to come to me and get right in my face and say, you think Mario Lemieux is the greatest individual talent to ever put on skates in the National Hockey League? No problem. As long as you've got Gordy, Bobby, and Wayne there, we're all good. You're buying the next round. Let's go. <laughs> and, and, and we're done. Because that's the four guys... That's the order chronologically that I call them out in. For me, I got Bobby Orr number one, but if you want to say Wayne, Mario, or Gordy, I'm all good. But to me, those are the four guys in the NHL, and those are the four guys for the Montreal Canadiens. I'll tell you one other thing quickly, Chris. I got hired to work oh, on, on, okay, on, on the 100th anniversary of the Montreal Canadiens, the DVD. I got hired to work on that. I, I originally was hired as a consultant. I went in there and watched them at the, at the Bell Center do an interview with Guy Lafleur, and almost threw up. It was so bad. And I went out to dinner with them that night, and they said, and they were all pumped and jacked about it and everything, said, what do you think, Liam? And I, I thought to myself, well, this is going to cost me a five-figure gig, but uh, I got to say it. I got to say, guys, that interview was embarrassing. You're talking about Guy Lafleur, one of the greatest players to ever wear skates. This is a Montreal Canadian DVD, and you don't even give the full due to Thursday night, May 10, 79, the greatest game he ever played. It barely went over it. I mean, I was revolted how they didn't touch on what he did in the third period of that game. I was in the building that night, and, and so I laid it out there. And just Tell us what he did. What did he do? Because I remember it like it was, and I was pissed at him. I, I, I hated him for it because I was a Bruins fan still, right? Hey, buddy, you were at Northeastern with my buddy Larry Parks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Parksy. You were with Parksy, and I ended up playing hockey with him later after you guys were done. And, and, and uh, I was at that night, Game 7, Thursday night, with my late father. And if you remember... Chris, they always, the old guy on Maisonov Avenue would always open. You would know this. You were playing. But as a fans, he opened the door. If you had standing room, you had a 30-second head start. If you Once you knew. I have left the forum probably 40, 50 times before somebody got word to me. I took my dad around. He got the best standing room in the Reds. And we were there against the Bruins. Ken was terrible, oh. that series. Absolutely terrible, by the way. Anyways, Habs are losing going in the third. He sets up Gila Point. Sets up Mark Napier, three all tie. Looks like we're heading to OT. Rick Middleton stuffs one from behind the net with three and change to go. I want to die. And and then too many men on the ice. And I'll tell you right now, I, there wasn't just six on the ice, there was seven. It wasn't just Stan Jonathan went over, it was Jean Rattel as well. And 
when when uh, when Myers when John D'Amico made the call, if he didn't make that call, none of those officials would have got out of the building alive that night. He made the call, which was the right one. Peter McNabb served it, and then the Habs didn't score in the power play right away. The Bruins got a couple clears, and then the the famous Danny Gallivan line, Lafleur coming out rather gingerly. <laughs> <laughs> up oh, to Jacques back in game, boom! Stick side on Jill Gilbert and uh, <laughs> tied that game up. I'll tell you right now, that railing, I was in the Montreal Forum 344 times. 78 of those were playoff games over 21 years. I was there for Guy Lafleur's first playoff hat-trick, Saturday night, May 1st, 75, 7-0 win against Buffalo. He scored his third goal on an end-to-end rush on a delayed penalty. And I was there the final night, Monday night, March 11, 96, with that ovation for Rocket Richard. And that night that Guy scored to tie that game in 79, has God is my witness, that railing shook from the, from the crowd in the Montreal Forum that night. And then Yvonne Lambert scores in overtime, the 9.33 mark. It was almost anticlimactic, you know? And, I mean, it was like, oh, okay, thank God that's over. But, you know, and then on to the Rangers where they lost the first game, <laughs> Dryden sucked again, and then and then he wasn't going to start game two, but Rod Brow broke Bunny the Rock's uh, finger in warm-up. So they had to put Ken back in, and then the Habs said, okay, Ken, we, we got it from here. And they won the next four games, and Ken retired at 31 years of age. That's a whole other story. Anyways, I digress. That's a great memory. Yeah. Are you just are you just always locked and loaded? Or do you ever like go he through is. a moment where you're like, if someone <laughs> asks me a fucking question right now, I'm gonna snap? Are you like are you like for like what I like for me, I feel like, you know, I could be like if someone's like, oh, they're like I there's a guy, you know, a buddy might be like, Hey, I played in this men's league game and he's telling me like how great this men's league game is. And I'm like, dude, I was on the ice with fucking Sidney Crosby. I don't care about the guy that worked at Chipotle, you know, like, and where I'm like, does anyone ever ask you like just a dumb question where they're like, Hey, name the six original teams. And you're just like, I don't have time for this. Are you just always ready? Like, I mean, this is amazing. You know what? Uh, I, I used to say that people would come up to me. could be my wife, could be other people at different times, friends that I was out with once I started to get a little bit of a name. And it happens all the time. And like, I, I got a function tonight at 6 o'clock. I, I guarantee you, people are going to come up all the time. I've never, ever, ever, not once, taken it for granted. I always looked at it this way because I'm, I'm nobody, first of all, couldn't carry your guys' skates as a player. Doesn't mean I don't have a passion for the game, but I get approached too. You know, I've got a little bit of notoriety, and so people want to come up and talk. If they're going to take 30 seconds out of their day, I'm going to give them 30 seconds out of mine. And yeah, sure, you get the mundane questions. You know, you get you, you get the stuff. I, I get them all the time. I had some guy emailing me yesterday telling me about something in a, that happened back in the in the 70s. I was going, pal, I I, I know exactly what happened, but but thank you for sending <laughs> that to me. I'm always grateful and and thankful and tactful in any response. And I've never I've never really had any any I had one bad experience, maybe two at the most, where somebody had took issue with me speaking publicly. You know, and and that hasn't happened in years. So uh, yeah. I've never, I'm always locked and loaded, Tim, to answer your question. That's awesome. You're a man, I, I don't, whether, you know, for me, I, I love this kind of stuff. You're a master at what you do, literally a master at your craft. And I don't care if anyone who knows you who doesn't, I just think that's, that's amazing. I love that kind of stuff. So it's awesome. 
how about we have producer Barry? Uh, he's a huge Penguins fan. You, so you, I'm sure you know a little bit about the Pens. Um, how about who's who scored who scored the first goal in history of the Penguins? That, that was Andy Bathgate got their first goal in history. They they had picked him up. Andy had a uh, Hall of Fame career. He's known for so many things, not the least of which is winning a Hart Trophy. Um, he won a Stanley Cup with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He actually scored the Stanley Cup winning goal for the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1964. He had come over to the Leafs from the Rangers in a massive seven-player trade uh, this, that season, 63-64. Ran into massive problems with Punch Imlach, as so many of the guys did. They, uh, they, they moved Andy on to Detroit, and then he got picked up by Pittsburgh. And that night, actually, Jean Beliveau scored his 400th career goal that same night. He got the game winner for the Habs in the Penguins' first ever game. Les Binkley was their goaltender. And, and um, they had, you know, they, they had, interestingly enough, within less than two years, they had Michelle Briere, who was actually one of Guy Lafleur's best friends. And they picked him up as a draft pick. And when they, when they won a playoff series, they beat Oakland four straight. In fact, Briere got the series winner. They got beat out next round, and then he had a car, a terrible car accident. He was in a coma for almost a year and uh, before he passed away. And they retired. He was first sweater number retired in Pittsburgh history, number 21. If you ever see that on their list, the name is Michel Briere. He was one of Guy Lafleur's best friends. And, and he died after almost being in a coma for a year. And uh, that first sweater number retired in Pittsburgh history. They, they actually... Um, they had the, the second S line in NHL history, Schinkel, Shock, and Shock. Uh, Ronnie Shock and Kenny Schinkel and Eddie Shock. They had a they had a solid <laughs> team. They, they ended up uh, Bob Boyle, Shank and Shock. They 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 had a they had a bunch of guys that had a lot of names that I think people would know. My my dear friend Noel Price from Brockville, Ontario, was also also won a Stanley Cup with the Montreal Canadiens in nineteen sixty six. He led all defensemen in ice time in nineteen sixty eight with the Pittsburgh Penguins in the NHL. Uh, very, very significant accomplishment in, in my book because Noel played a long time of pro hockey, 21 years, and he only got about 400 games into the NHL, but he never quit. So I got lots on Pittsburgh. That's just the first few years. They went bankrupt. Ren Blair took him over. I mean, this is all before Mario and the dive and to get to, to get Mario. They had Mike Bullard. He's the only 50-goal scorer on a last-place team in NHL history. He was with the Penguins that season, so... I mean, Mario came over and then Sid. Those two parts of the Pittsburgh Penguin dynamic are chapters unto themselves. But before you got there, you know, you had Jean Pronovo, you had Pierre LaRouche, and and then even back, as you just asked, uh, Chris, about those first years in 67, 68, 68, 69, 69, 70, from, from the Bathgates and the Dwayne Rupps and the Noel Prices and the Les Binkleys into Michelle Briere's and then into the... Jean Pronovos and the Pierre LaRouches, they they had a they had a good history. They they really did. They they didn't unfortunately make any noise really in the playoffs until Mario and, and company came along. But uh but they, they had a good history and uh they played in the igloo and 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 the old Civic Center and and uh you know Pittsburgh Hornets were a, a long, long successful standing team in the American Hockey League, man. Long storied history. And they were the Pittsburgh Yellow Jackets before that. Now you're going back to the 1920s. So they, they, they've got a great history of hockey in that city. What's the greatest, what's your greatest game you've ever been to? And what's, aside from, you know, 
you know, me scoring the last goal with the Thrashers in the last. What's the What's the one game you wish you could have you You wish you could have been at? That, that game, uh, if I could have been at game eight and seventy two uh, in Moscow when Henderson scored, uh, uh, it would have. It's It's still a seminal moment, as I was saying to you earlier in in my life. That Thursday afternoon, September twenty eighth, nineteen seventy two, two thirty p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the nineteen twenty six mark of the third period. Uh, it it uh, changed my life. Uh, that that goal changed, definitely 100% changed my life. And uh, if I could have been at one game, uh, I've I used to go to the forum, as I said, 344 times. I started going. I was 15 years old, and when the game was over on a Saturday night after the Habs had won and Lafleur had scored, or my favorite player of all time, Yvonne Cornway, had scored, I would I always had standing room. I'd be way up at the top. We couldn't afford any other tickets, and I would run my hands against the walls and I always go out last I'd let all the guys go ahead of me so I could stay in my stay standing as long as possible in the building I would walk out and I would look around and say I wonder if there's some place I could hide and I could just show up for practice tomorrow there's just some little nook and cranny I, I could hide in and and I would just run my hands along the walls and I just wished I could have been I could, if I could go back in time and be in that building when Rocket Richard was in his prime, I, I don't, I, I just, I don't know what I would. I interviewed him in 1989, and I can consider it one of the highlights of my life. And uh, anything to be at one of those games, I feel very fortunate. I was in the building when they cup in '79. I got, I got golf shirts made up that said Club de Hockey Canada, and me and my three buddies. Uh, Tom Bissonette, Greg Meredith, and Kevin Jardine. I said, guys, we're going to stay relatively sober for this game because Larry Robinson told me to my face the summer before <laughs> that, Liam, when we win the cup, because every year it was just, you know, the parade will take the normal route, that <clears throat> when we win the cup, you get in the room and I'll make sure you guys drink for free all night. That was a huge incentive to me. So... I got the golf shirts made up, and this was May 21, 1979. I was, it was my, my, my last year as a teen, my last day as a teenager. I turned 20 the next day. Habs win the cup. They're carrying Ganey off the ice on their shoulders to win the Consmite Trophy. I roll down. We get by every usher. We're right down out front of the dressing room, and we're, cut, we're in. We come in the front door. You remember it, Chris. We come in yeah. the door. There's Larry, the place, sheer bedlam. <laughs> he spots me. We're about maybe 35 feet apart. So I'm like literally three seconds away from having my right hand on a pint. What all a thrill. Sudden, all of a sudden, <laughs> we get pushed back against the wall. This rush of RCMP security come flying through and pushing everybody out of the way. Because they're bringing in Pierre Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada. Oh. He's coming oh. in the room. We get pushed out by the mob of security. We never got back in. We never got back in. Oh. If I could have made it in the room that night, I may still be there today. <laughs> now, here's the deal. And I know he's a friend. I know he's a friend, and I was with him last night, okay? The roadrunner himself, 
okay? Last night we had a little we had a little alumni event and um god, you have you have quite the relationship with him. Uh he, the year I came in, he was at training camp 79 80 and he retired that year for the, the bad back. Um and, and you 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 talked to so many and had relationship with so many former players. If there's one NHL player today you could sit down and shoot the shit with, who would it be? He's doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, it's a great Tim, question. With Tim. Yeah, yeah. Like I consider Chris a very dear friend. And, and that, that, that uh, I talked about, uh, Tim, I talked about Mo Trombaugh earlier when uh, Murray Wilson was running those fantasy camps. That was my first time that I, that I met you, Chris. And uh, I, uh, yeah. I don't mean to bring up a sad memory for you, but I, I believe your brother-in-law had, had just passed away at the time. Uh, Danny Mack, yeah. I think. He, he was a police yeah, officer, I, he got, I believe. And, and you, you, had yep. those, you had those hats. He got hats. killed. He got killed. And you had, you had those hats. And in you gave me a hat uh, for, to, in, in his honor. And uh, I have that hat. And, and, uh, and I remember being on stage that night and talking about you and how, how much I, uh, me and millions of other hat fans fell in love with you joining the team. And I said to me, what really changed you physically in the NHL was that fight against Brian Curran when you started working those uppercuts, man. Nobody really had definitively done that, at least for the Habs anyway, in NHL history. And, and uh, uh, I, I just, I'm sorry to digress because, Tim, you made a, a joke, but I'm telling you, I'm thrilled, man. I'm thrilled to be talking to you and meeting you, and I'm, and I'm always thrilled to be on and around Chris. Anybody today... I mean, I've never met Sidney Crosby, and and I'm I'm a huge fan. I've never met Connor McDavid, and I'm I'm a huge fan. Um, those would probably be the two guys that are playing today. That if I ever had a chance to sit down and 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 talk a little bit with, I've done a few gigs in Nova Scotia. I'd I'd love to to, to talk to to Sidney about Nova Scotia, not so much about day to day stuff in Pittsburgh and whatnot. But I mean, you know, I obviously scored one of the one of the iconic goals and certainly Canadian hockey history and hockey history over time to win an Olympic gold on home soil is, was pretty big moment. Right. So, you know, and Connor, just because, I mean, he's the next one and he's the guy who's continued. He's taken up the gauntlet from Sid. And uh, I, I just think it would be, um, I'd like to have a conversation with him as well at some point in time, but there'd be a couple others, maybe some guys who've been around a long, a longer time that uh, I wouldn't mind having a conversation with, but uh, those two in particular stand out. Yvonne Cornway is my, as you know, uh, Chris, yeah, yeah, he's favorite. my number number one all time. And and I'm very, very close to him and, and his wife, Evelyn, and, and their children. And and uh, he, he he means a lot to me. He did as a kid, and he still does. So I'm, I'm thrilled and wow. honored pleasure to be able to call him a friend believe me well good stuff and uh if you're listening uh we're in conversation with liam mcguire uh the world's number one i don't care number one nhl uh expert and historian and it's awesome to have you here uh liam for sure and i'm gonna pop this one at you which a player is the first in the nhl to score a full strength power play shorthanded penalty shot an open neck goal in the same game. I mean, I know this. 
Okay. That was easy. All right. Well, Tim, know that. So forget Liam, it. you got competition now. I might be the... No, I, I think I know this. Maybe I'll just go ahead, Liam, answer it because I know I'm going to price it. It's, 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 it's interesting because at the time um, that that goal was scored, I was part owner of a sports bar in Ottawa called the Original Six. So it was more of a hockey bar than anything because Mario scored that goal on New Year's Eve, 1989. So at the time in Ottawa, there were only two bars, two sports bars that had satellite dishes, us and ironically a place that I'm going to tonight called the Prescott Hotel. They were the first place in Ottawa to get a satellite dish. We were the second sports bar. We had that game on. We had that game on. And uh, now we had a big party going. I wasn't paying full attention to it. But when he got the hat trick, uh, it was when he got the penalty shot and it was against the New Jersey Devils and the goaltender, I think they used two that night. One of them was Chris Terreri. I think he got the penalty <laughs> shot against and, and uh, it was when he got the empty netter, nobody realized at the time, nobody at the time realized that uh, I just, I got asked, Hey Liam, uh, who's the last guy to get five goals? I said, well, Wayne's done it like five times, you know, so you got to go back. And Yvonne, like Knuckles, we're just talking about Yvonne Cornway. He had a five-goal game February 15th, 1975. So, you know, against the Chicago Blackhawks, final score 12-3, goalie was Mike Visor. So they were infrequent at the time. You know, there weren't many guys that were doing it, but uh, we didn't know for a couple of days uh, until, because uh, no internet, that Mario had 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 made this significant accomplishment, and still to this day, he's the only guy to do it. What's your take on today's game and how it's evolved? And you know, you got the lacrosse goals, less fighting. Obviously, like, what's your you 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 a fan of today's game? I'm 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 a fan of the game, but I yeah. I I miss the uh, you know look at uh, what Zegers and those guys are doing. I I have no problem with. I just. They need to understand, first of all, he can't go in a crease on a 5 nothing game with a buck 45 to go and poke at the goalie. Like, you can't do that. All the left-wing bleeding hearts out there crying <laughs> about Beagle who dropped the gloves for the first time yes. in nine years. His first time dropping the gloves in nine years, and he's got a kid on his back. He turns around and fires a few shots. He got half cut by his visor. I'm talking about Terry, obviously. And all the bleeding hearts crying on social media. Like, you know, you know these people never played a competitive sport in their lives. They've never been in a bar beyond 11 o'clock at night in their lives. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. (laughs) They're afraid of their own shadows. And that you've got this big business conglomerate run by two entities, the NHLPA and the NHL, the Board of Governors and the Players, and they have what's called the Collective Bargaining Agreement, and they have their entities to put it together, and all the left-wingers in the media that cry anytime someone throws a dirty look, or anybody that purports to be a hockey fan that think they have a problem with what Jay Beagle did, they, they are what's ruining the game, because they now all have a window at the flick of a switch because of the phones and social media. And they become the cancel culture and the woke society. They can't skate from here to my stove. And yet they're going to tell you what's wrong with the game because a big, bad meanie threw a punch on the ice. You know, it's uh, it's sickening to me. But, uh, you know, I'm not saying, hey, look, I grew up in the 70s and the bench clearing brawls uh, were incredible to watch. I mean, Chris was in them. 
I wasn't. It was a different animal. And when guys tell me, look, they were hairy situations, I totally get that and believe it. And look, it, we've moved so far beyond that. But let the guys be guys still. You've eliminated. All the enforcers are gone. Like Ryan Reeves, Tom Wilson, and a handful of other guys who all have to play a regular shift are all that's left from that era. So, you know, Rick Westhead and these guys go on. They go on their soapboxes, and they go out, and they keep finding the guys who had problems back in, 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 the, in the 90s when it was the tail end of it, you know, when the Donald Brashears and these yeah. guys are just and, – and, or, or the 80s, the guys are and, – and they say, oh, you know, all the fighting – and this and that, you know, Pat LaFontaine's uh, career was ended from concussions, not because of fighting. Keith Primo's career was ended from concussions, not because of fighting. Uh, uh, Jeff Cordell's career was ended from concussions, not because of fighting, you know, and, and let alone the hundreds of other guys who dropped the gloves. Like our guy here on the panel, Chris Nyland, one of only nine men in the history of the sport to record more than 3,000 minutes. He sounds pretty damn good to me. And have you know? 20 goals. <laughs> and have 20 goals. Yes. And win a Stanley Cup. And lead the league in penalty minutes in back-to-back years with 338 and 358 minutes, respectively. <laughs> no, oh, I, I like what you're it. saying. I, I think I, when I saw that Terry incident, I, I was like, if I was Terry, I would have fucking yelled at Zegers. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't, you, know? don't, you cannot tell me that yeah. Ryan Getzlaff, when he got back to the dressing room, not, I know he was hurt, so he may not even been at the rink that night. But within 48 hours, I guarantee you, he went and told both those guys, hey, fellas, you know, and, and this is the way it is. I love the game back then. I'm not one of these guys that pines for the, the, the yesterday. I love the memories that I have. It could have been in the building when, when Rocket was playing. That's just a, you know, a, a hyperbole thing. They say, you know, I'd love to go back and see what that would have been like because I've read, I've known so much about his career. I love the game today. You got a month of hockey, which is the March Madness of the NHL, where you're going to have eight a night for two weeks and then go down to four. It's the best time of year. But yeah, I mean, it's I'm more upset at the reaction to to you know from 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 the pussies that comment on social media than I am about the actual actually watching the game. The game the games I love. I watch 20 games a week. I watch parts of 20 games a week. And, and I got the package, and I watch hockey all the time, and I love it. It's a great sport. Can you imagine if there was no red line oh. when Flower played? Or three-on-three three when, when, when – can you imagine oh, uh, Larry, Larry Robinson, Flower, and Cornway are going out to start to have three-on-three in three, 1977? Hello, Gretzky, Curry, and Paul <laughs> yeah. Coffey. Hello, I mean, come on. So, you know, I wish they could have had it. But, no, I, I love the game today. I love it. But it, it's a reaction from, from the crybabies. But I, I love the game. We watch on TV. We see Tim make a play. See Chris make a play. We watch as fans. You guys are out there. You're not playing with Joe Buck, who's, you know, going to work tomorrow at Walmart and wants to tell you about his hat trick in 40 and over hockey. You're in the NHL. It's a big (laughs) business, man. You guys, it's your job. Like, you know, I look back now and I want to hope that that you guys got it, derived every bit of flavor out of it that you could because I have so much respect for what anybody did that played even one game in the NHL, let alone had careers like both of you did. But, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's the game. I love, I love it. I, I- That's awesome. Liam. I, I love the way that you, you're certainly a passion for, it, but just saying what you said right there. And, and that's what, you know, I, I hated when people call players goons who fought like, 
to get to the NHL and play one game, the accomplishment of that, people don't understand that. And 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 you certainly your passion is awesome. And it and it shows in the in the book that you uh, authored alongside uh, Ogie, uh, Ogle, Goldie Goldthorpe, the real, the real Ogie. And um, give us a little background on him for the, the people that are listening and, and, and just what this guy did in the game of hockey and how much he loved it and, and, and your relationship with him. Well, as you know, Chris, he absolutely loves you. And uh, the opportunity you gave us in Montreal to come on the air. Uh, he he talked about that. But here's the thing. I, I have never met anybody like him. And, and, you know, Chris, you come from a tough world. You come from a tough town. You come from a tough upbringing. And you played that way on the ice. So I think you, and I'm sure, Tim, just in a little bit, I'm getting to know you here. I'm sure you would have the respect. This is a guy, Goldie. He didn't make the NHL. He was in two camps. He had a, a few cups of coffee in the WHA. But he, he played, you know, he, he played 11 years pro. It would have been several years longer. And maybe he, he was supposed to have uh, potentially a tryout with the Minnesota North Stars. But he was recovering from a gunshot wound, okay? He, he, he had been shot by drug dealers who were selling drugs to kids that he warned them about already not to do. And then his girlfriend, his ex, Goldie's ex-girlfriend OD'd. And was on was on his floor when he came back from the gym with his with his Navy SEAL buddy that he was working out with. And Goldie said, I know exactly where she got those drugs. And him and the SEAL went over to that to the, to the place. And Goldie went right through that door, kicked it in, and started swinging on every single person in there. And there were eight of them. And he didn't go in with a gun or a bat or a knife. He went in with these, these. That's all he ever used. He's never done drugs. He's the most, he's got the most incredible backstory of any former pro athlete, I think, in history. Because people think all the trouble he got in with the law, all the arrests, all the assault charges, they were all born out of him staying way too late, way too long to make sure anybody and everybody he was with got out of there. And when they needed a cavalry or they needed to call 911 because nothing good happened in the 70s at 1 or 2 in the morning on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night, pretty much anywhere in the world, which excludes everybody who's crying about someone throwing a punch in hockey today, I guarantee you they weren't there. So when Goldie did that, all the while conducting himself as an enforcer in hockey, he won a championship in the minors. He bounced from team to team. He was a hired gun. He was making $20,000 a year playing four rungs below the NHL in 1975. That's crazy money. And what team was that? What team was that, Liam? That was on the uh, Broome County Dusters when his contract oh, okay. <laughs> got picked up right? in, in Binghamton. Exactly. They, they were the Binghamton Dusters. They were the Broome County Dusters. They had the two names, same location. Goldie, the owner. Then they were the, the broom, broom dusters. dusters. Yeah. Then they were the broom dusters. The dusters. They said Goldie filled yeah. every single arena he, he he was in. So when I was in Kingston in 2017, um, he, he had guested on my radio show a few months before. I went down to Kingston to meet him. We spent the weekend together with Doug Gilmore, 
and a bunch of other guys who were former pros, some of whom you you probably know, Chris, back in the day, guys. And and uh, we spent the weekend together. Now I shook his hand when I left Goldie that Sunday, and I said, "How come no one's done a book on you?" And he said, "A couple guys kicked the tires, just never followed through." I said, "Well, will you give me a chance?" And he said, "Sure." And it took a while to get a contract, but I finally got one. And I said, I'll get this book in print. And I did. And I'm going to get this story on the big screen. And I will. This will be a feature film movie. Mark my words. It'll be at the Sundance Film Festival or the Toronto International Film Festival in 2026 or before. And it's a story that needs to be read. And it's one that needs to be on the big screen because it's that entertaining. When we booked this thing to go on Chris's show in Montreal, Goldie said to me, um, we're going, uh, we're, we're going to uh, Chez Perry, the uh, strip joint, after, yeah. after our book signing. And I said, uh, uh, why? And he said, I'll tell you after. And I said, all right, Goldie, I don't care, buddy. I'll go to any bar with you. I don't care. But we're doing Knuckles show. He says, yeah, I can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. Then we got the signing at Hurley's, which, which Mitch Melnick set up, as you know, Knuckles. And... We did the signing at Hurley's. We had people drive up from Quebec City to, to, to get the book. It was, a, it was a brutal night for driving, and all sorts of people came. We were drinking on the house all night. We had a hotel room right across the road. I drilled 100 back. It was so much fun. And Goldie says at about quarter to 12, I thought he'd forgotten about it, but no, no, got to go. And I said, Goldie, why don't you stay here, man? We got, a, we got a tab. We're eating. Everybody wants to talk to us. You're signing autographs, taking pictures. I'm going. And I said, all right, Jesus, I'm going. I'm not going to let him go by himself, even though, even at his age. Anyways, we go in there. And as you probably remember, Chris, you know, you, you get wanded, right? Like, they want you to make sure yeah, you, don't, yeah. you don't have weapons. And there's, like, there's four of us went. I grabbed a couple guys from the bar. I said, I don't know what's going on. This is just three years ago. I don't know what's going on. He's losing his mind. I don't know. Jesus, please, God, don't start a brawl. Anyways, we go in there. They don't, they don't want them. I mean, these doormen are the size of mountain. They just let them walk right in. I saw it with my own eyes. So for one, I'm freaking out on that. We go in, we sit down. He won't sit with us. He goes up. You remember, Chris, there's that place, the backside of the stage there, you know, and, and there's a little raised yeah. area. And <laughs> nobody was sitting there, but he went up and sat there. And so I go up to him after about half an hour. I go, Goldie, what the Christ? Like, Come and join us. You know, we came in here. He said, I'm sitting here. I said, oh, my God. Like, you want to pull the hair out of your head. So I stayed for about two hours. Got a couple dances, you know, we had a few drinks. And, and then I go, Goldie, I'm out of here. I'm going back to Hurley's. Are you going to stay here? I don't know what the hell's going on. And he just said, go. I said, okay. So I read about you in jail tomorrow, and you've ruined this book tour. I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> Anyways, he shows up back at the hotel. Long story short, we get in the car. Next morning, we have breakfast. We're driving to Kingston. For another book signing. I said, will you please tell me what the hell was going on? And he said, you see where I was sitting last night? I said, yeah. He said, that's where the hell's angels sit. Nobody's supposed to sit there. So I said, you went to sit there hoping that some hell's angels were going to be in the bar. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, get, Goldie, <laughs> if they were in the bar, they probably would have come up and gently asked you to leave. And he said, I was hoping for that. And I oh. said, Goldie, like... You have to remember, guys, you know, if you haven't read the book, Goldie was in the Hell's Angels, okay, in the 1980s. Yeah. He was 
right hand to the lead guy who has since been killed. He was killed in prison or died in prison after he got arrested. Got the story in the book. You only leave the Hells Angels one of two ways. You go to jail or you carried out feet first, unless your name is Goldie Goldthorpe. They sent all the enforcers after him in Kelowna, BC. This is a true documented police report story. And I got it in the book. And they sent to, to beat wow. his head in. And I got it in the book. That's why I wrote the story. That's why he went to the strip wow. joint. He wanted to confront the guys in Montreal that night. And uh, that is just a different cat, man. This isn't just a story. Well, thank God. He was the only, he was the only <laughs> Hell's Angel that was also a broom duster. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he would be, Tim. That's correct. That's, that's, all right. Wow. Hey, that, he, yeah, he is one of a kind, Goldie. No question about it. And the book is called The Real Ogie. Uh, and you should pick it up again. He is quite the character, like Liam wow. said. And, and Liam, um, a lot of people think Gretzky came up with the number 99. He wasn't the first player to wear 99. Who was? No, no. There were, there were actually uh, five guys before him. Uh, I mean, three way back wow. in the 30s, Leo Bergold, Des Roche, and Joe Lamb, when nobody thought anything of it. It was <laughs> at, at, at the time, in the 1930s, when the Depression hit, the NHL went from a two-division, 10-team league down eventually to six teams to what became known as the original six. They weren't the original six teams. It was a media term. But as the Depression hit and the NHL suffered as the world did and teams started folding, they started to rely on what they thought could be anything that was a gimmick to get people to come to the games. So they said, let's experiment with higher sweater numbers. So they told teams to employ guys wearing higher sweater numbers. And in the mid-1930s, you had three guys wearing 99. Then in the 1970s, when Wilf Paymall was traded in 79 from the Colorado Rockies to the Toronto Maple Leafs, he couldn't get number nine. It was being worn by Dan Maloney. So he went with 99. And, and, uh, and Wayne Gretzky was wearing 99 in junior and in the WHA at that time. And then Rick Dudley wore 99 for two weeks with the Winnipeg Jets in 1981. Now, Gretzky uh, wore nine as a kid. He wore 11 his very first year pro, uh, of uh, hockey at all in 1967. Then he wore nine all the way through until his uh, three games with Peterborough as a protect as a 15-year-old. And then he played Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds as a old And he started with number 14, and he went to number 12. And Angelo Bobacco and Muzz McPherson, he was all depressed about couldn't get his number because a veteran <laughs> on the team named Brian Galazzi wouldn't give it up, his number nine. So they said, why don't you do what Phil Esposito is doing with the New York Rangers. He went to the Rangers in a trade on November 7, 75, five-player deal. He couldn't get his number seven because Roger Bear had it. So he went with 12, went with five, and then he put on 77. And he scored a hat trick. So he went to Kenny Hodge. He said, Kenny, you got to go to 88. So he had Kenny go to 88. And he started getting everybody on the team to go to double-digit numbers. Then he went to the goaltender, John Davidson, and he said, Johnny, you got to wear zero, zero. You got to wear zero, zero, and you'll get a shutout right away, Johnny. You'll get a shutout right away. So this was going on. So McPherson and Bobacco said to Gretzky, do what Espo's doing. So he did, and he put on 99 with the Sioux Greyhounds in Christmas of 77. There you go. 
There you go. Do you have a, do you have a is there like a stat you're proud of like that you you hope someone <laughs> asks you or like you know what I mean? Like is it like like this is this is amazing. Well, I always like, say you, I always say now be, because of the phones, right? The the, the phones have, have massively changed my gigs. So the two things I say when I start on a microphone in front of any crowd, I tell people, I tell one person, I said, "Bring up the list of Stanley Cup winners going back to 1893. Just bring them up on your phone." And then I'll tell another person, I'll explain it, i explain it. Everyone knows the major NHL awards, Hart Trophy, Art Ross Trophy, Conn Smythe, Vezina Trophy, and so on. I said there's only one award that you can't win a second time in a row, the Calder Trophy. Would someone please bring up all the Calder Trophy winners on their phone? So I've got one person with all the cup winners, and I've got one person with all the Calder Trophy winners. So the Stanley Cup started in 1893, and the Calder Award, which became the Calder Trophy, which became the Calder Memorial Trophy, started in 1933. <laughs> so then I say, give me any decade, and I give the winners. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Awesome. Um, I'll, I'll give you a decade. Then uh, uh, the six, uh, let me, the 60s, Stanley Cup winners. 60 Stanley Cup, so 60 Montreal, 61 Chicago, 62, 3, 4 Toronto, 65, 6 Montreal, 67 Toronto, 68 Montreal, 69 Montreal. Well, if you go back, just, just pick any one of those years, Chris. I'll pick you 68. Okay, well, 68 was Montreal, so uh, they won the Stanley Cup. They beat St. Louis four straight. Um, so the um, uh, cup-winning goal was scored by uh, J.C. Tremblay. John, John Ferguson got it in 69. And the Conn Smythe Trophy, though, was won by Glenn Hall. He became the second player to win the Conn Smythe Trophy on a losing team. The Conn Smythe Trophy started in 1965. First winner was Jean Belleville. Second winner, losing team, Roger Crozier. Third winner, Dave Keon. Fourth winner, Glenn Hall on a losing team. And then your dear friend, the fifth winner, uh, Serge Savard in 1969. So there's the Conn Smythe Trophy winners in the 60s. And 68 was the Habs. They won four straight. And... And uh, they they beat Boston in the uh, in, in the round before, and that was uh, really when I started watching. I mean, I watched the start. The hockey games back in the '60s only came on on a Saturday night at 8:30. So the '66 final against Detroit, I was only allowed to watch the last few minutes of the first period. It had already been on, and my dad said I had to go to bed. By '68, I could stay up for two periods, and then in '69, as I told you earlier. They let me stay up for that full game, game six in the semis, where Montreal won as well against St. Louis. But so I can do that for any decade. And, and what about the Lady Bing? You know the Lady Bings all every year? I I, I used to. You don't have time. But, you don't have time for that pussy that pussy <laughs> shit. No, you know what? It's a, it's a it's a major trophy, and I know it started in 1924, and the first winner was Frank Nyber. And I know that Frank Boucher won it seven times in eight years, and the one year. He didn't win it in 1932 out of the seven that he did. It was won by a guy named Joe Primo, who played on the kid line with Toronto Maple Leafs, and Charlie Conacher, and Harvey Busher Jackson. And in that year, um, Primo got a fighting major. He got a fighting major and won the Lady Bing. And he's not the only one to do so. Wayne Gretzky won his first Lady Bing in 1980, and he actually was in a fight that year. He fought a guy from Chicago named Doug LeCueway. And, and uh, anyways, I, I digress. But I do know most of, of the Lady Bing winners. I can tell you that Jacob Slavin, who won last year, became the fourth defenseman to win the Lady Bing trophy, joining uh, Bill Quackenbush, 
Red Kelly and Brian Kel- Campbell. All right. Which NHL player, Liam, holds uh, a rather odd record? The most regular season games played in a season. And who is he? How many games and who is he? Is there one guy or two? I thought it was a tie. It's Well, there's one guy. Okay. I had Jimmy Carson and Bob Kodelsky at 86 games. I got Jimmy Carson, 86 regular season games. Yep. So Bob Kodelsky played 86 as well. I got a question. I don't even know the answer to. I, I got a question. Yeah. Go for I, it. I, I, I scored, a sh- like since the shootout era, I scored a shootout goal before I scored my first NHL goal. Oh, wow. Has anyone, yeah, I know, it's a true story. Like, there's not many goals in my career. So, um, <laughs> but is, do you know if anyone's done that before me? No, I don't. No, I don't. But I'm going to research that because Tim, I mean, all right. This could really be something, man. I got a lot of records on here, apparently. I mean, I mean, I'm this telling one's you, I'm growing by the hour here. We're picking <laughs> another one up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I love this. Much respect. Um, oh, man. Who's the first goalie to score a goal? First goalie awarded a goal in the NHL was Billy Smith on November 28, 1979, against the Colorado Rockies. The Rocky coach was was uh, was was Don Cherry, and a lot of people erroneously think Hardy Astrom was a goaltender that night. It wasn't. It was Bill McKenzie. He was pulled for an extra attacker on a delayed penalty. Rob Ramage skated into the corner, fired the puck back, forgetting that that's where he was supposed to be on D, and it went the length of the ice. And they discovered that the last guy that puck had touched was Billy Smith. First guy to shoot it into the net was Ronnie Hextall. But the first goalie awarded a goal was was Billy Smith. I believe there's been 13 now, I think, in total. So there's uh, there's been a few. But Billy was the first. First in pro hockey uh, was Michelle Plass with Kansas City in 1971. And then you, you got to go way back. And there were some guys, there were some goaltenders when they used to skate up in the ice. A guy named Patty Moran with the Quebec Bulldogs way back in the day. Pre-NHL scored a goal. So it's it's uh, was very infrequent. First goalie to wear a mask. Who's the first goalie to wear a mask? First goalie to wear a mask was uh, was Clint Benedict. Was the first to put one on. Uh, Charlie Rayner put one on briefly, both just to protect injuries. And, and then uh, Jacques Plante, uh, aforementioned Andy Bathgate, who scored the first goal in Pittsburgh Penguin history, came out years later. Years after Jacques had passed away, and Andy Bathgate finally admitted publicly for the first time, Andy has since passed away too, that he deliberately shot the puck at Plant's head night in New York in 59, November 2nd. And uh, Plant went off the ice, and he told Toe Blake, I'm not coming back unless you let me wear the mask. And Toe had no choice, so he let Plant come back on with the mask. And then he badgered Jacques so much for the rest of the season, this was 59-60, that he eventually forced Jacques to take the mask off one more time. It was March 8th, 1960, a game against Detroit. Montreal lost 3-0, and Jacques went to toe. He said, you can trade me, cut me, bench me, whatever. I'm not never playing another game without without this mask. And uh, so Jacques relented, and, or uh, Toe relented, and Jacques wore a mask from that point on in his career. And then eventually Montreal did trade him. <laughs> To the Rangers in 62, but uh, he was a handful, it sounds like, in his playing days. Very eccentric guy. All right, here's one. 
who was the first player to have recorded 10 consecutive 50 assist seasons. Oh, Bernie Federkel. Bernie, Bernie Federkel. Oh, that was elementary, Knox. Yeah. That was well, elementary. Well, he this knew is a that. Yeah. He knew that. That's, oh. that's a that's a great question. Uh, Bernie, Bernie got inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2003. He's from a little town in Saskatchewan called Foam Lake, and they flew me out there. <laughs> they flew me out there to MC the event. This is a town of 400 people, and there were 700 people at this dinner. And unless you've been in Western Canada, and probably I'm sure many places in the states illinois other states i'm sure tim but the size of the farms are indescribable they're four to five thousand acre farms it's unbelievable anyway this guy he was my guide when i got there picked me up at the airport in regina it was a two-hour drive to foam lake his name was harold sandberg older looking guy walked with a bit of a limp he's pretty much bald didn't think much of him he i said i want to see the arena he took me into the foam lake rink and they got all the on the wall, all the MVPs from the Senior Hockey League in the 1960s. And I'm looking at the names, and I'm seeing Les Clark, Les Clark, Harold Sandberg, Harold Sandberg, Les Clark. I'm going, wait a minute. First of all, Les Clark, that's when, that's Wendell's dad. And he said, yeah, that's Wendell's father. And I said, Harold Sandberg, is that you? And he said, yeah, that's me. I said, I just drove here for two hours. You didn't even tell me you ever played. And he said, well, I didn't want to, you know, I figured it'd come out eventually. I didn't want to brag or nothing. I just played a little senior hockey. I got hurt, bad car accident, wasn't able to play any further. When I got back home, I phoned Wendell Clark. And, and he said, that guy you were with, Harold Sandberg, he was the best player by far. He almost died in that accident. He should have got killed. Never really played again after that. Then I talked to Bernie Federico, but he said the same thing. He said, Liam, he's a legend, a legend. And there's hundreds of these guys. Nobody knows them. Nobody knows their stories. And they they provided, Bernie Federico said, Liam, I looked up to Harold Sandberg as much as I did anybody in the NHL. And look at the career Bernie went on to. He had first guy in NHL history with 50 or more assists, which uh, 10 consecutive, like Chris said. All right, I got to ask you this. <laughs> now, I love um, some of the crazy hockey names you hear over the years. I'm sure you have a couple. I'm just going to put one at you, and I want you to come up with another one. Sheldon Canagiza. Yeah. <laughs> what a name. Sheldon Canagiza. Yeah, one of the best <laughs> days, man. Los Angeles King, uh, early 1970s. I remember him as a player. And I mean, he had, I mean, there was another guy at the same time named Dave Herekasi. They called the wrecking ball uh, it, that played in the same time period. There's been two players in NHL history who have had their names changed for the simple purpose of being able to be broadcast. One was Ennio Scorsese, and he had his name formally changed to Jim Ennio, and the other guy was Steve Wachichowski, and he had his name changed to Steve Wachi, W-O-C-H-Y, and they're the only two in NHL history that had their names formally changed for the purpose of being able to be broadcast. They played in the 1940s. But there are some beautiful ones. I mean, how do you not love the name, especially when you know anything about him, Sprague Cleghorn? I mean, it, <laughs> it sounds like a cartoon character, yet when Sprague Cleghorn was asked at the NHL Awards many years after he had been retired in 1950 in New York City, a reporter for Sports Illustrated went up to him and said, Sprague, 
how many fights do you think you were in in your career? And Craig tilted his head back and put his thumb and forefinger on his chin, and he said, well, do you mean just stretcher cases? And he was dead serious. <laughs> dead serious. <laughs> this guy was fined and suspended by his own coach. By his own coach for nearly killing guys on the ice. I'm not saying killing facetiously. I mean, yeah. he was, when I interviewed King Clancy in 1983 in Maple Leaf Garden, that was the first name that I shot at him. I was a snot-nosed kid going to college in Toronto, sitting in front of him. I was 23, 22, looked like I was 12, and that was the first name I ran by him, and his eyes got as big as saucers. He wanted to rip your head off. How do you know that name? And I said, well, I know quite a bit of history, sir. I know quite a bit of history. He was psychotic. <laughs> I mean, Sprague Claiborne. How, how do you not love the name? How about what team? What team holds the record for most 20 goal scorers in one season? Who were those 20 goal scorers? Boston Bruins, 77-78 with 11. Broke the record, <laughs> actually. The Habs had with 10 in 1971. And actually, St. Louis, a couple years later, in 81, ended up with 10 guys as well. But that Bruin team, the last guy, the 11th guy to do it, he played here yeah. in Ottawa for the 67s. He's he an was American, an American. American kid named Bob Miller. He was, yeah. he was the 11th guy to do it. There was a massive feud that night between the benches, between the Bruins head coach, Don Cherry, and the Leafs head coach, Roger Nielsen. And Grapes was calling Rogers a lot of very uncomplimentary things. <laughs> and and uh, and he'll never forget it. He, Grapes talked about this many times. It was a face-off. The Leafs are down by a goal, face off in Toronto's end, and Nielsen pulls Palmateer. They got an empty net. So Grace throws Miller on the ice right away, just praying to God that Rattel's going to win the draw, which he did. Feeds Miller because Grace knew what was going on, and he feeds Miller, and Miller became the, the 11 20 goal scorer. John Wensink had 16 goals that year. He was four goals away, or they would have had 12. But, I mean, like Stan Jonathan scored 20 that year. You had your McNabs and Rattels and O'Reilly's and Parks, Middleton's. But Bob Miller and Stan Jonathan, Greg Shepard, some of these other guys, you, you wouldn't probably remember, you know. But uh, it's an incredible accomplishment yeah. by a hell of a team that if they don't run into the Habs in the late 70s, they win a couple cups all day. But the Habs in the late 70s are, are the greatest team in the history of the NHL. Whoa. Uh, God, yeah. I could just, Liam, you, you, just, you can't stump you. Um, God, let's think, uh, who, who, let me think. Uh, Ray Ferraro's favorite pregame meal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Chicken palm, chicken, chicken palm, palm, baby. Razor's, Razor's uh, a great guy, 408 goals. His numbers in juniors are, are insane. And I, I think he's, I think he's as good or better than any color analyst in the game today. I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan and I, I know him a little bit. I consider him a friend. We've never actually sat down and had any pints together or anything, but uh, I think he's a good played his, played his heart out and, uh, and uh, you know, the former Atlanta thrasher and, <laughs> you know, he's just, uh, just, a, just yeah. a great guy. Great, great guy. I mean, he was on those Hartford teams. I know how much he loved coming in the forum. They just couldn't get a win when it was mattered to save their lives. I was at the game when Lemieux scored in 86 and overtime 555 mark on Mike Liu to me. It was unbelievable. And uh, they just couldn't, you know, he rushed Cortinals 
big OT against him as well in 89. I mean, it was just, they just always ran into the Habs of the Bruins. You know, it's kind of like the Winnipeg Jets being in the division with Evans and Calgary. Just so tough. Dale Howard, Chuck, so many great years, just couldn't get over the hump and get a cup, you know? All right. Liam, if, if you could go to dinner with four NHL players all time, who would they be? I'm, I'm sure probably, I guess it, it would, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily be your uh, Rushmore, but who would those four players be? <clears throat> Dead or alive? Dead or alive. Any four players. Well, Rocket Richard, Eddie Shore, 100% Eddie Shore, um, probably Jean Beliveau, and uh, I'll show my, my, my partiality towards Montreal, I guess. I think my only non-hab would be Eddie Shore, but I think I'd go Rocket, Beliveau, and, and, uh, and, and Flower. You know, I mean... Uh, I guess he, uh, you know, you'd say, why not Yvonne? I mean, I've, I've, I have. Because you've already had dinner with him. Right? <laughs> what about, what about from 1990 to the present, present? 90 to present, I would probably say uh, Wayne. Um, I'd probably, again, but I've been out with him too, though, you know, so I guess you'd have to class, if you clarify it. Yeah, say get guys, rid of you know, Wayne. Wayne. So I'd probably Mario, you know, I've not, I never, I only met Mario formally one time. I scrummed him in interviews a few times at the, rinks here in Ottawa, but I never, I never, uh, uh, obviously was able to have a beer with him. He would be on the list for sure. Uh, post 1990. Um, I would say, uh, that I have not been with, but that's a, that's, that's a good question. P- probably, probably put Sid in that list. And, um, I would, uh, thinking quickly here, uh, boy, so many, I've been lucky, you know, I mean, I've sat down with a lot of guys like, uh, I, I was very fortunate to to sit, you know, work several gigs with Bob Probert, who I just loved. I mean, I, I just absolutely loved the man, and and um, you know, I, I mean, I would, uh, I guess Wayne, or I should say Mario, Sid, like two others, uh, right off the top of my head, post nineteen ninety. I've sat down with Stevie Y, you know, so I have to give that some thought, man. I mean, um, Patrick Waugh, maybe, you know. Uh, I think that'd be kind of a fun night. You know? All right. We're going to leave you on this one, Liam. Uh, what if NHL is to have another franchise? What city would you say to put it in? It's actually online today talking about this and, and hoping and praying that when they go to 34, that Quebec gets a team. I mean, they've had the building built for a few years and, and I, I know there's other teams in the States that are, that are sniffing around, you know, your, your Portland's and maybe your return to Kansas city and what have you, but how, how you expand any further and not, not give Quebec a shot. Again, I don't know if they've got all the financial infrastructure in place. I believe they did at one point and hopefully maybe they do again, but I don't know how you beat that rivalry, Chris. Uh, you were front and center in it. Yeah. I don't think it was a, a, Crazy. a better one. Crazy, crazy. It wasn't just the teams. It was the ownership. It was the cities. It was the beers. It was politics. You had Molson's versus <laughs> O'Keefe. You had, you, had, you know, you had Michelle Bergeron versus the world. You had, you know, you, know, you had the brawls on the ice. You had the brawls in the stands. The media hated each other. I mean, it was, I don't think for 16 years <laughs> and five playoff series, I don't, yeah, how you don't bring a, a team back to Quebec when you know the passion that that province has for hockey uh, and given what they had before. I think to me would be the one city that uh, I, I really, really, really hope and pray they. I like couldn't. Was- I could not. I could not agree more. And I, I, 
honestly, I don't think I've met, ever met anybody with as much passion yeah, for the game just gonna say that. than you have. And I, it's just awesome to hear how much you love the game and how much you're into it. You're a good friend. Uh, a lot of respect for you. And we will have you back for sure. And the next time with the real Ogie. Goldie Goldthorpe. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Liam. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, Boys, thank you very much. Pleasure. Barry, thank you, Chris, Tim, everybody. Thank you very much.